Well, we are fast approaching the end of our series in Acts, which um, to some of you may cause you to breathe a, a big sigh of relief. Um, to others, you may be devastated. Um, it might interest you to know that, that this series actually began when Monty was still around, so that's how long we've, we've been in the book of Acts, before I, I even was around Kirkpatrick. So um, it's good to be coming to the end, as, as we'll see over the next few weeks, um, and I hope that you've enjoyed it as much as, as I certainly have being part of, of teaching on it. Let's just pray together. Jesus, all for Jesus, all I am and have and ever hope to be. Father, it's great that we can sing these words. We pray that tonight as we look at your word together, that it will be reality in our lives. That as we hear you speak to us tonight, we can leave humming and and singing that in our heads and really, really meaning it and for it to be reality. Challenge us so much from your word tonight, Lord, that our lives are changed. That they're directed more towards you, to your purposes, to your plan, to your son, Jesus Christ, and to serving him. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Are you trying to convert me? Have you ever heard... Have you ever been asked that? So maybe you're, you're talking about being a Christian or you're explaining about Jesus and, and what he's done or something like that. You're making a case for him. And someone says, are you trying to convert me? Even uh, if it hasn't, even if you've never been in that situation, I want you to imagine that scenario. How do you feel? What thoughts are racing through your mind at that very moment when you've just been asked that question? It'd be really good to take time tonight to actually talk about that with each other and and get some feedback, but but I'm not going to take the time to do that. I'm sure you have some thoughts in your head, but here's a few that that may be running around in your head, and I'm sure there's loads of others. Maybe you're thinking, yes, it's exactly what I'm trying to do. Maybe you're thinking, this person now thinks I'm trying to brainwash them. Maybe you're suddenly getting very embarrassed. Maybe you're asking yourself, well, what do I do next? What do I say now? Maybe you're thinking, is this them being defensive because they've been convicted by the Spirit? Or maybe you're just thinking, no, 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 no. It could be a mixture of things going through your head. And it could be easy to feel at that moment that, yes, I'm trying to convert you, is the wrong answer. As far as that person's concerned and everybody listening, as soon as they say, are you trying to convert me? Suddenly, pressure stakes are on. Because to say yes means that I'm trying to impose my views on you. And that's bad in society today where tolerance is the highest virtue. It's very easy to feel defensive and embarrassed at that point. It's very easy to go a little further and actually start to think, perhaps I really shouldn't try and convert people. I can explain my beliefs, and if people are interested in knowing, brilliant, that's great. But I really shouldn't be aiming deliberately at conversion. Of course, we put in the caveat here that we can't convert anybody. Only God can. But you know what I mean. Aiming at persuading people. 
We can very easily start to think that it might be nice if my friend, my colleague, my family member, whoever it is, it might be nice if they wanted to become a Christian. But that's not really my goal in the office or at the school gate or wherever. And so if I'm asked the question, I'm tempted to say, no, 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 I'm not trying to do that. That's, that's not what I'm trying to achieve here. Rather than saying, absolutely. Of course I am. Which is what you will notice Paul says at the end of chapter 26. You see, Agrippa tries to push Paul off. You'll notice, look at verse 28. Do you think you can persuade me to become a Christian in just a few minutes speech? And Paul replies, short time or long, I pray to God that not only you, but all who are listening to me today may become what I am, except for the chains. Paul doesn't want anybody to become a prisoner, but apart from that, he says, I wish they were all Christians. I hope and I pray that they become Christians. That's my goal. That depends on God, of course, which is why I pray it. There's no coercion about it. I can't make anyone do it. But of course, I'm trying to convert people. Of course, I want everybody to become a Christian. And what I want to do tonight is just look through this fairly long passage in 25 and 26 and see where that conviction of Paul's comes from. Do you know, as I've studied this a little, I guess... If I'm honest, I've been challenged by my convictions over this. Do I have the confidence to reply as Paul does and say, absolutely, I want everyone to become a Christian? As Dan mentioned, we're just going to quickly glance through chapter 25 first because it really sets the scene for what happens here and then in verse 26. Excuse me. See, Paul has defended himself. You may remember last week, if you were out, in front of the Roman governor, Felix. Well, at the end of chapter 24, uh, Paul spends a couple of years in prison. And then Felix has been succeeded by Festus. So now Festus is the new Roman governor. In chapter 25, verse 1, Festus goes down to Jerusalem. And then the, the Jewish leaders see this as an opportunity to reopen Paul's case. If you look at verse 2. And they appear before him and they present the charges... In actual fact, they see it as an opportunity to try and kill him again. Verse 3. So they want Festus to have Paul transferred to Jerusalem because they're preparing an ambush to kill him. Festus says no. He says to them, come up to Caesarea. So up they go. And around verse 7 or so, court is convened. The Jews come in, they put their charge against him, but they couldn't prove anything, Luke says. And then verse 8, Paul makes his defense. He says, I've done nothing wrong against the Jewish law, the temple, or Caesar. You may remember that those are the three areas they had accused him. It accused him of not being in line with Jewish law, being a heretic. It accused him of desecrating the temple, and it accused him of stirring up rebellion against Caesar. And so effectively here, there's no change. It's a new trial, it's a new governor, but we're no further forward. Paul is in the same position. Well, Festus is just into office, and he wants to do the Jews a favor, if you see that in verse 9. So he says to Paul, Paul, are you willing to go over to Jerusalem, you know, be tried there? Paul's no fool. He knows that the pressure from the Jewish leaders would be that much more intense. 
Uh, perhaps he even knew of the ambush plans like he did the last time. And so Paul now appeals to Caesar, which was his right as a Roman citizen. So from this point on, really what we're waiting for is for Paul to head to Rome. That's the next major and the, and the final major event in the book of Acts that's going to happen. But while we're waiting, in the midst, just before that happens, King Agrippa turns up. The King Agrippa is a Jewish king, and he turns up just to pay his respects to the new governor. Ooh, as they're chatting and having drinks or whatever they did, Festus tells him about Paul. And Agrippa wants to hear this man for himself. And it's at this point that we start to see what the issue is really going to be. Verses 18 and 19, Festus is talking to Agrippa. And he says this, he says, you know, when his accusers got up to speak, they didn't accuse him of any of the charges I expected. Instead, they had some points of dispute with him about their own religion, about a dead man named Jesus who Paul claimed was alive. And he says, I was at a loss over it, and so on. See, Festus knows that the real issue isn't about disturbing the peace, or anything like that at all. The real issue is about Jesus. And so they arrange a hearing for the next day, in front of Agrippa. And then we see that the question that's going to develop is what is the charge? What is it that Paul has done wrong? You can see that in verses 25, 26, because um, Festus is, is just totally unsure. He says, this man has done nothing deserving of death. There's nothing to write to his majesty about. I, I think it's unreasonable to send a prisoner without specifying the charges. And really, I'm just trying to find out what the issue is. What has this man done? What, what is so wrong? So then Paul stands up. But in this trial, it, it's really different to the previous one. Because Paul isn't defending himself against false accusations now. Now he's being asked, Paul, how exactly do you differ from these Jews who are accusing you? What's the big deal? What's the problem here? They know it's to do with Jesus. But what exactly is going on? And chapter 26, really, is Paul's answer. I've given three headings to this as we start to look through chapter 26. Given three headings to explaining why Paul is now in the business of trying to convert everybody. Why he thinks now that Jews, Gentiles, and everyone needs to be persuaded to become Christians. And the first reason is that Jesus is the center of God's plans. Look at verse 4 in, in chapter 26. Paul's saying that they all know about how he's lived. You know, he says, I, I'm, I'm one of you, basically. I lived as a Pharisee according to the strictest sect and so on. I know what they think. I know what they believe. But now it's because of my hope in what God had promised our ancestors that I'm on trial today. Paul says, that's why I'm on trial. That's the reason. It's the hope that God had promised our ancestors. In fact, he refers to it several times, this hope and this promise. Look at verse 6. It says, because of the hope of what's been promised. Verse 7, this promise is what our 12 tribes are hoping to see fulfilled. King Agrippa, it's because of this hope that they're accusing me. You see, this hope and this promise obviously go together. You make a promise, like I'm sure I'll make to Eve in, in a few years, you know, that I'm going to take her to the zoo or something. And she then has hope because of my promise. Hope and promise go together. 
So you live in hope of the promise being fulfilled. And God had made promises in the Old Testament. Promises of a new age to come. Promises of a restoration. Promises of a new king who would reign. Promises all revolving around the promise of a Messiah. And Paul is saying, I'm on trial today because of this hope that I have in that promise. But that that can't be right, can it? Because the Jews have that hope too, don't they? He's not on trial because he believes there is some kind of hope that God would do something. No. Paul's accused because he believes that hope and that promise are all about Jesus. He believes Jesus is at the very center of God's plans. See, Paul thinks that the Old Testament, which contained that hope because of the promise, are all looking forward to the death and the resurrection of Jesus. Paul acknowledges that he didn't realize that himself at one stage. He goes on in verse 9, he says, I too was convinced that I ought to do all that was possible to oppose the name of Jesus of Nazareth. You know, he says, I would have been standing where my accusers are standing not too long ago, presumably because he thought Jesus couldn't be the Messiah either. He couldn't be the fulfillment of those promises. And he thought these Christians were dangerous heretics who must be stamped out. And so he got on with stamping them out. He says, you know on what authority, the authority of the chief priests, verse 10, I put them in prison and when they were put to death, it was me that was voting against them. I went around trying to gather them up and even went abroad to find them. But while going about opposing Jesus, while Jesus confronts me, verse 12, on one of those journeys, I was going to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. About noon, O king, as I was on the road, I saw a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, blazing around me and my companions. We all fell to the ground, and I heard a voice saying to me in Aramaic, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It's hard for you to kick against the goats. See, Paul meets the risen Lord Jesus, whom he's been fighting against, and he and those with him can't do anything but fall to their knees in front of him. See what Jesus says there in verse 14? He says, why are you persecuting me? It hurts you to kick against the goads. A goad, in case you don't know, is something that that you would prod an animal with. Basically to get them to go in the right direction. So if they're starting to go their own way, you poke them. And if it resists and and it starts to go the right way. And obviously for the animal it would be hard for it to kick against this goad, this prod, because it would hurt And this phrase came to be used of people resisting authority, even resisting a God, resisting divine authority, which is exactly what Paul's doing when he's fighting the Christians. Because he's fighting against Jesus, which is fighting against God. And so in this moment, Paul sees that Jesus is the exalted Lord whom God has raised and vindicated. And he sees that resisting Jesus is resisting God. See, Paul now sees that the Old Testament promises and the hope that they were all about Jesus Christ. He was blind to it, but his eyes are opened. Just glance down and see what he says in in verse 22. A bit later on, verse 22, he says, I'm saying nothing beyond what the prophets and Moses said would happen. 
that the Christ would suffer and as the first to rise from the dead would proclaim light to his own people and to the Gentiles. Paul says, I'm not saying anything more than the Old Testament said. But Paul now sees that properly understood the Old Testament is a book about Jesus. Because Jesus is at the very center of God's plans. And so it teaches about his suffering, his death, and his rising to life again. What was Paul coming to know the light of Jesus? You see, the Christian folks can now say something quite remarkable to the Jew. And probably should say something quite remarkable to the Jew. So the Christian can walk up and say, Do you know, I'm really sorry to say this, but you don't understand your scriptures. I'm afraid you are blind to what they're really about. Because Jesus is the center of God's plans. The Old Testament is all about him. All his promises are promises about Jesus. All the hopes they should have had for the future are hopes that Jesus would fulfill because he's the Messiah. He's the exalted Lord. He's the one they should have been looking forward to. And so now Paul sees that. And he turns from persecuting Christians to proclaiming Christ. And he now tries to convert everyone. Because he knows that Jesus is the center of God's plans. Secondly, Paul tries to convert people. Because Jesus alone brings salvation. It's really just a variant on the first point. But I just wanted to divide it up for you slightly. Because if if Jesus is the one at the center of God's plans. And the plan is a plan of salvation. So then Jesus is the one who brings salvation. Look at verses 16 and 17 there. Jesus speaks to Paul and he says, Now get up, stand on your feet. I have appeared to you to appoint you as a servant and as a witness of what you've seen of me and what I will show you. I will rescue you from your own people and from the Gentiles. This is Paul's new job description. See, he's now a servant of Jesus. He's a witness of Jesus, of what he's seen and what he will see. And he's sent now to the Gentiles. That basically means to the nations, to everyone. Because Jesus, as the center of God's plans, well, he now has a universal claim. And now, what is Paul sent to do? What does he do to do when he goes to the nations? Well, we get the answer at the end of verse 17. He says, I'm sending you to them, men and 18, to open their eyes, to turn them from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Let's just think about those phrases. This salvation that Jesus brings. Paul is sent so that he can bring spiritual sight. To open their eyes. In other words, people are blind and they need to be given spiritual sight. They need to have their eyes opened. Paul's being sent to turn the spiritual lights on. It's a similar idea to to the eyes opening, to turn them from darkness to light. See, it's like we're all walking around in darkness not knowing what we're doing or where we're going and the salvation is like the lights coming on so that we can see reality. Paul's sent to bring liberation He's sent to turn them from the power of Satan to God. Folks, people are currently under the power of Satan. Which is not how I tend to think about my next door neighbor. 
or how I think of me before I was a Christian. But it's the truth of the matter. Paul referred in Ephesians to how we all follow the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the devil. We're not very conscious of it. As far as we were concerned, we went around life making our own decisions, but actually Satan was at work. We were under his power. And Jesus now sends Paul to turn people from the power of Satan to God, to liberate them. He's sent to bring forgiveness of sins. I don't know if you've thought much about the whole issue of guilt. I've talked to people many times who are very honest about feeling guilty. Some are more than others, and some of us are better at putting things to the back of our minds than others. But when we feel guilty, well, that's because we are guilty. We don't keep our own standards, let alone God's. And what we need is forgiveness. And Jesus sends Paul so that people can receive forgiveness of sins. And lastly, Paul is sent so that people can join in God's kingdom. See that at the very end of verse 18 there? He says, a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. This is those who are sectioned off. Those who are set apart for God, becoming God's people. And all these things, all these things that Paul has been sent to bring, come by faith in Jesus, in his death And in his resurrection. So you see Jesus sends Paul to bring these things. Paul obviously can't bring them himself. He has to tell people about Jesus. He's got to be a witness about Jesus. He has to spread the message about Jesus. And as people hear the message. And respond in faith. They receive their salvation. It's interesting how it ties in so well with what Moore was talking about this morning. Just about the importance and the necessity of the proclamation of the gospel. People can only respond when they hear. And then Paul says in verse 19, he says, King Agrippa, I wasn't disobedient to this vision. Jesus appeared to me and I did what he said first to those in Damascus, which is where he was. Then in Jerusalem, which is where he was next. Then in Judea, and then to the Gentiles, which is the nations at large. large. Paul says, I preached that they should repent and turn to God and demonstrate their repentance by their deeds. Paul says, I tell everyone, and I tell everyone everywhere, now that they should turn to God. And doing that means trusting in what he's done through his Savior, through Jesus Christ. See, God hasn't brought salvation through anyone else. God hasn't brought salvation through anything else. It's only through Jesus. And so Paul now refers back in verse 23 to the message of light which comes to the Jews and then to the Gentiles. He says it's a message of light that's now spreading across the world because you see the world is in darkness. But Jesus opens people's blind eyes He brings people out of bondage. He gives people forgiveness. No one else does that. No other message does that. And so Paul now proclaims to everyone, everywhere. And I'm sure he did it respectfully and lovingly and kindly. But he did it. Lastly, Paul proclaims that everyone should become a Christian And he says he'll try and convert everyone 
Because the gospel about Jesus is truth. I know it sounds like an obvious point, but look at verse 24. Festus interrupts Paul. He says, you're out of your mind, Paul. Your great learning is driving you insane. The fact is that a lot of people will think this is a load of rubbish. They'll think it's madness. It's too much to believe. But look at how Paul replies in verse 26 and 27. Or 25 and 26. He says, I'm not insane. What I'm saying is true and reasonable. The king is familiar with these things and I can speak freely to him. I have convinced, I'm convinced that none of this has escaped his notice because it was not, because it was not done in a corner. Paul says, I'm of perfectly sound mind. I show no signs of having lost touch with reality myself. What I'm saying is both true and reasonable. It fits with reality. It's true. You'll find these things in the Old Testament if you look for them. Like I've said, you will. Jesus did die and he did rise from the dead. I was confronted by him on the road to Damascus. None of this has happened in secret. It's public knowledge. These things are true and reasonable. They make sense. There's nothing bizarre or illogical about them. All right, may not fit your current thinking, Festus, but you can't just dismiss it as madness. And he pushes the point to Agrippa. Verse 27, he says, King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you do. You know the Old Testament. You believe it, I trust. You know what I'm saying fits together. And Agrippa tries to push him off. But Paul replies, as we saw earlier, I pray that everyone will become a Christian. And Paul wants this to happen because he believes it's true. Which some will say is kind of obvious. I know, perhaps you're thinking, well, Graham, I wouldn't be here tonight if I didn't think it was true. But I guess the question is, do we really, really believe this is true for everyone? Not personal preference, not what I like to think, not what fits with me, but truth. Because if we truly believe that, we will try and convert people. I came across a blog, just so happened this week, uh, where a guy, a blog that I would often go to, a Christian writer, and he was telling a story about a man, a friend that he had um, lost touch with and had bumped into again quite recently, and he's writing about this in his blog. And the man was an atheist, and this is what he said. He said, this man was, was an atheist who grew ever more unconvinced of God and of Jesus Christ and of Christianity because of all the Christian friends he had. He had rejected it as nonsense finally, in his mind anyway. Because he thought if they really believed their faith was truth, then they would have poured their lives into helping me to see it. But they didn't. There are different levels of conviction. We can believe something is true, and yet it doesn't really bear out in our lives. But there are new depths to which we can really believe something. And then there are new depths to how much that would really affect our lives. The gospel is true. And so Paul tries to convert everybody. The gospel is true. And so then should we. So folks, we should be encouraged firstly this evening. 
that Jesus is at the very center of God's plans, that he brings God's salvation, and that is good news that can be true for everyone. And I want us to rejoice in that salvation ourselves, as we've already been doing this evening. But we should also be challenged to be so convinced of that, that we should want to convert people lovingly, kindly, trusting in God absolutely, but saying to myself, that friend, that neighbor, that colleague, that brother, that sister, whoever, I want to tell them the gospel because it's true and so that they will believe it as well. Amen. I'm just going to invite you to take a moment's quiet. Close your eyes. Take a minute just to think about what you want to say to God. How do you want to respond to what God has been saying through his word this evening? Just take a moment's quiet to do that. Our great Father, we give you thanks and praise for the salvation we can have in Jesus. For wonderful forgiveness, for becoming part of your people and being liberated. Give you praise and thanks and rejoice in that salvation. We ask in your mercy that you would empower us by your spirit. That you would help us as you helped Paul to be those who would proclaim that gospel. With our friends and our colleagues. Would you please give us opportunities, we pray. Help us live lives that show we are people who have turned back to you. Who show our repentance by our deeds. That people will see something different and maybe ask us of the hope that we have. And may we be ready to tell them that we have hope because of Jesus. In your mercy, would you please work through us in that way, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen.